0: with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we come to the final portion of 1 Corinthians 15, an incredible chapter, don't you think, in which Paul has been talking to the church at Corinth about the resurrection of the dead. And he has been answering some of our deep questions about Life after death, or maybe even more technically, life after life after death. Verse 12 reveals the problem. Look there, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Some say there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, we don't know whether they thought that death brought complete annihilation. Uh, maybe soul sleep, or likely some kind of a disembodied spiritual existence that's completely foreign to our understanding. But what we do know is that they weren't correct. Because in this chapter, Paul has been explaining that there is a resurrection of the dead. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the physical bodily resurrection of all who belong to Jesus at his coming into the new heavens and the new earth. Today, verse 50 through 58, we come to the conclusion of Paul's argument where he makes one climactic point. Let me give you that one climactic point in, in one sentence, and then we'll unpack it throughout this sermon. Here's Paul's climactic conclusion to this discussion. Our resurrection with Christ in the future has been secured By the victory of Christ in the past, and that good news motivates our faithfulness to Christ in the present. Let me say that again. Our resurrection with Christ in the future has been secured by the victory of Christ in the past, and that good news motivates our faithfulness to Christ in the present. Throughout this section, Paul is going to show us that the good news of the resurrection of the dead is comprehensive. Did you hear that it is past, present, and future? As we study this portion of Scripture this morning, Paul's going to show us that the good news of the resurrection of the dead is all about Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're raised because of Christ. And that gospel motivates us to be faithful to Christ. And Paul's going to show us that the first two What happens in the future and what has happened in the past are not ends in and of themselves. But they result in the third. Our faithfulness to Christ in the present. So friends, as we study this text today, my prayer is that every single one of you will be convinced that Christ is our only hope in life, and in death, and that your life will prove it. So let's read our sermons text together, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. must put on immortality. Verse 54 When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? That in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's God's word. Amen. Climactic conclusion. In three parts. First of all, notice that Paul talks to us about our future resurrection with Christ. He has been explaining that there is a resurrection of the dead. But notice he begins basically by saying, I tell you this, brothers, you're right. You're, you're right. Our mortal bodies cannot inherit God's eternal kingdom. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. Here's the good news. Death is not the end. There is a resurrection of the dead. Our mortal bodies will be changed into immortal bodies so that we can inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And So, in verse 50 through 53, Paul explains the who and the what and the when of our future resurrection with Christ. Look at verse 50. He explains... Who will be resurrected with Christ in the future? In this chapter, Paul has been speaking directly to Christians, not non-Christians. Look there in verse 50. He calls them brothers. Look again in verse 58. My beloved brothers. This letter is to the church in Corinth. Paul includes himself with the first person Plural pronoun, we, in verse 51. Look there, in 52 and 57. He said this is all happening to us, and this is our hope. He's talking to Christians. In verse 45 through 49 last week, those who will be resurrected are identified as those who are, quote, in Christ. In Christ by him. Faith, rather than in Adam by birth. They were identified in verse 23 as those who, quote, belong to Christ. So friends, as we have said throughout this study, the promise of a future resurrection of the dead to life is only for those who belong to Christ. Whereas Jesus says... He warns in John chapter 5 that everyone will be resurrected, but those who die in their sins will be resurrected to judgment, not life. So non-Christian friend, I hope that what we talk about and what we study this morning causes you to trust Christ as your only hope in life and in death. That's my prayer for you this morning. That's who. But what does he mean by the future resurrection? Look in again in verse 50 and 51. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood can't, the perishable can't, but I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. When Paul talks about a future resurrection with Christ, He's talking about something that's a mystery. It's no wonder the Corinthians had questions and confusion about it. A mystery in the Bible uh, refers to something that was formerly hidden and undiscoverable by mere human logic, but something that is now revealed by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So this mystery of the resurrection of the dead has been revealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says there, here's the great mystery, some will not die. We shall not all sleep. You know what that means? That means that some people will never experience death. They'll still be alive at the coming of Christ. Sign me up for that. But he moves on and he says, regardless, regardless of whether you are dead or alive, look at verse 51. Emphatically, he says, we shall all be changed. Everyone who belongs to Christ, dead or alive, will be changed. And look at verse 53. Paul explains that this change must occur. See there in 53, the emphasis. This perishable body must put on imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. This body isn't made for the eternal kingdom. This one is wasting away. And so God will change, key word, change our mortal body into, well, we learned last week, we will will be changed into a a body that is as different than this body as an acorn and an oak tree uh, designed by God for eternity and the new heavens and the new earth, just like a fish is designed for water. We will be changed and I, and I love this little bit of, of commentary that was drawn out this week. The word changed there is to make it something other than what it is right now to exchange one thing for another. We will exchange this mortal flesh for immortal flesh, immortal bodies. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says it this way. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God will change our bodies in the resurrection of the dead. That's who, that's what. Now the question that he answers in verse 52 and 53 is when? When does this happen? When does this change take place? Look in verse 52. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trump. For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When? Well, Paul says, in a moment. That's the Greek word for Adam. The smallest possible bit of time. In a moment. In a blink of an eye. Suddenly. Instantaneously. Verse 52. At... The last trumpet. Now, the imagery of a trumpet is of a trumpet blasting the announcement and arrival of the king. And here, we're seeing the announcement, the last trump. Announcing the arrival of King Jesus to establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the last trumpet is associated with the end of all time, the the coming of Christ, the final judgment of the living and the dead, the eternal kingdom of God. That's when this change will take place. Consider just for a moment uh, four different scriptures. Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament Joel says this: Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. Jesus said in Matthew 24 about this trumpet: All the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Paul wrote about this last trump, the coming of Christ. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. And you might imagine that the book of Revelation talks about this coming of Christ and this trumpet. Revelation chapter 11. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign Forever. Oh, what a day. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that trump will sound. The dead in Christ are raised to life, those who are alive are changed instantaneously. And God's kingdom is established on earth. And Jesus said about that day concerning that day and hour, no one knows but the Father only. Therefore, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you belong to King Jesus? Are you ready? Are you in fact already, but not yet part of his kingdom? He's coming. Paul's final point for his whole chapter on the resurrection is our resurrection with Christ in the future. Number two, has been secured by the victory of Christ in the past. Our future has already been determined by what Christ has accomplished in the past, that's good news. It's not up to me. It's not up to you, friend. It's not what we do, but what he has done for us. And so now Paul talks about the past victory of Christ that secures our future resurrection with Christ. Look at verse 54 through 57 and let's consider the past victory of Christ. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, read it with me, church. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul praises God for The great victory that Christ has won for us in the past over sin and death. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the death of death and the resurrection to life into his kingdom forever. Here in this particular section... Our great enemy, the last enemy, death, is imagined as a venomous beast. Look at it again. Death is a dreadful beast that wields a weapon that's full of venom, terrorizing and destroying all of humanity outside the garden of God. No one, no one, not the strongest person, not the not the richest person, not not the smartest person, not the most beautiful or talented person has ever been able to escape death's sting. Until Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in our reading this morning from Revelation one, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. That's our King Jesus. King Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, conquered our great enemies, sin and death. And so now Paul confidently uses quotes from the Old Testament to sort of taunt death a little. Do you notice this? Paul reaches back to Isaiah 25 and he says, death is swallowed up in victory. (laughs) Paul reaches back to Hosea 13 and he says, hey, death, Where's your victory? Hey, death, where's your sting now? Taunt. Because Paul knows that the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ has caused death to die and lose its power. And now, like a scorpion without a stinger, like a snake with no teeth, death is still at work. It's still menacing, but with no real power. And so Paul explains how this victory was won. This is theologically rich. I encourage you to to listen to what I'm about to share about the trifecta of death, sin, and law, and then consider it later and, and get your Bibles out and study this. But look at verse 56. How has this death, I pardon me, how has this victory been won? Verse 56, there's a direct connection between death, sin, and the law. Do you see that? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. One seems to be empowered by, even strengthened by, the next. The beast is death. Its weapon is sin, and the power of its weapon is the law. And this metaphor teaches us the truth about all of humanity, every one of us. The law indicts us as sinners. Which one of us has not broken God's law a million times? We're all sinners, and God's law indicts us as sinners. Sin condemns us to death. And then death separates us from God forever the law sin death but god wasn't content to leave us there here's the good news here's the gospel of jesus christ god reversed all of that god defeated sin and death for us through christ so look at that same trifecta the law has been fulfilled through the life of Jesus Christ. Sin is forgiven by the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus Christ. And then death is defeated through the resurrection of Christ. So while the law and sin and death reign supreme over mortal, sinful souls. Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has won the victory for all who are in Christ by grace through faith. And so Paul writes about this gospel. Just think about the law of sin and death as he talks to the church at Colossae. He says, here's the good news. You, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together with him. How? How did God do that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how could he do that? By canceling the record Of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. The law that indicts us as sinners and gives us a rap sheet of crimes before God and man. The sin that condemns us to death and the death that separates us from God Forever, that rap sheet was nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He died so that we can be forgiven forever. Have you been forgiven of your sins? The past victory of Christ secures our future resurrection. With Christ. And Paul praises God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Friends, listen, for those in Christ. Death is still an enemy. It's it's no question. Death is still a dreadful part of the curse. But for those who are in Christ, death is merely physical now. Death has no power to condemn or separate us from God. Paul praises God, yes. Praise the Lord. The most significant result of the resurrection of Jesus is the death of death and the resurrection to life in the kingdom of God. Of Christ forever. But look friends. Look at verse 58. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't finish. On that climactic note. Of praise to God. I think I would have finished with 57. But not Paul. He doesn't finish with the. Praise for the past victory of Christ. Or our future resurrection with Christ. In verse 58. Paul says, therefore, the resurrection of Jesus results in something more. The great therefore of the resurrection. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Uh, Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. You see how this lines up? The past victory of Christ and our future resurrection with Christ motivates our present faithfulness to Christ. Paul describes this as a life marked by immovable faith and unstoppable service. And that might seem contradictory. You've heard the conundrum before. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Well, Paul says, understanding the resurrection of Jesus results in both. At the same time, a life marked by immovable faith and unstoppable service. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. He talks to them about an immovable faith. Look, the past victory of Christ and the future resurrection with Christ means that right now, right here, right now, it produces and motivates an immovable faith. Paul's talking to them about their faith in Christ and his gospel. He says it in a positive way. He says uh, it is steadfast. That's to be fixed and settled, solid. Their faith is fixed in Christ. He says it in a negative way. To be immovable is to be not moved, not swayed or shaken from your faith in Christ. Look back up at the beginning, chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. He started this way. He's ending the same way that he started. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul wants them to have a faith in Christ and his gospel that is steadfast and immovable. Paul says the more we understand about the victory that Christ has won for us in the past and the resurrection that Christ has secured for us in the future, the more we will hold on to Jesus and won't let anything move us away from The gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see how these two things will promote and result in an immovable faith? Well, I think maybe it would be helpful for us just to pause for a moment and consider what might move a person away from their faith in Christ. Could this happen? Has this happened? Could it ever happen to you? What might move us away from faith? Oh, it's never going to happen to me. You might think. Paul says to those who think they stand, take heed lest you fall. What might move us away from faith in Christ and his gospel? Well, the Bible warns about a number of things. For example... You might be surprised that the Bible says that good things in life can move us away from Christ. Good things like relationships, like your family, like recreation, like wealth and success. Good things can become ultimate things and lead us away from faith in Christ. The Bible also warns that hard things can move us away from Christ. Friends, think about the hard things that you have endured or that many in this room have endured. Hard things like tragedy, death of someone you love, physical suffering. Those kinds of hard things in life. You experience that kind of tragedy. That can cause a person to become disappointed with God, maybe even angry at him. I thought you were a good God. How can you allow bad things to happen to me? Bible warns that people under the pressure and heat of the difficulties in life can turn away from their faith in Christ. But Paul's main concern for the church at Corinth is not good things or hard things. You'll think back to the 14 chapters that we've already studied so far. Paul's main concern for the church at Corinth was that the church at Corinth was adopting the wisdom of the culture around them. They were being infected with the spirit of the culture. And the wisdom of the world was moving them away from faith in the wisdom and power of God through Jesus Christ. And specifically his cross. Friends, for us, I could think about many, many different threats in the mindset of our culture, but there is none that threatens us more today than what Carl Truman calls expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the mindset that is prevailing in our culture that each person is defined by what they believe about themselves. Their desires, their feelings, their preferences are the authority for their life. And nothing can challenge that. And since Christians believe that God is the authority for our life, and that God has expressed His will and His design and His opinion for our lives through Scripture, and that in fact, God sent Jesus to rescue us from ourselves. Then in our culture, the expressive individualistic culture, Christianity is deemed intolerant, hateful, and oppressive. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power and wisdom of God. Don't let anything move you away from faith. In the power and wisdom of God to save us from ourselves. Paul tells us here that the victory of Christ in the past and our resurrection with Christ in the future motivates immovable faith in the present. So let me just ask you a question. What are you counting on to overcome the sins of your past and your separation from God in the future? What are you counting on? The wisdom of man? Expressive individualism? Look where that's gotten us. As the catechism said that we recited this morning, what's our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. He is our only hope in life and death. Friends, there is no salvation in Anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, friends, I I encourage you keep looking to Jesus, He is the author and finisher of our faith. Paul says, Christ's past victory over sin and our future resurrection motivates us to a present life marked by two things. First of all, an immovable faith. Secondly, an unstoppable service. Look at 58 again. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of everything that I've just said, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Unstoppable service. Friends, God's amazing grace to us in Christ motivates us here and now to give our lives energetically to the work that Jesus has called us to do. Always abounding. Not just always working. That would be fine. But always what? Abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One What works specifically? I suppose you could fill in the blank with many different things right there, but this exact phrase was used in chapter 14. The word abounding, Paul used it when he said, So, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to abound in building up the church. For three chapters, Paul emphasized the work of building up Christ's church. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 was all about how the Spirit of God gifted every single member of the church of God and empowered every single member to build up the church in love. And what Paul is emphasizing here is that everything that we do for the gospel and the church is eternal. None of it will turn to dust. So give yourselves to it. What Christ has freed you from and secured you into causes us to give ourselves to it right here, right now. A life on this earth in this body of unstoppable service to the Lord. So just like we did with immovable faith, I think we would do well to just stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question, what what might stop us from serving Christ? Does anything ever stop you from serving the Lord? Sure. I wrote down three. Number one, busyness. I'm always busy. How am I supposed to always be abounding in the work of the Lord if I'm always busy? Well, I've got two answers for you. Number one, reprioritize your life, or get a different perspective about what Jesus calls us to do in the normal, everyday activities of our life as citizens of heaven on earth. And our priorities that we already have, our busyness can become eternal business. Number two, what might move us, pardon me, what might stop us From serving Christ and his gospel? Well, I suggest difficulty. Most gospel work is people work. And if you haven't figured it out already, people are sometimes difficult to work with. Have you spent much time with me? (laughs) Number three. What might stop us from serving Christ and his gospel? I suggest one of the things that Paul has in mind here very specifically is the frustration that comes from not seeing any visible fruit. Why do I say this? Because he says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, they feel like their labor is in vain right now. And the frustration of seeing this thing not bear any fruit, just causes them to want to quit. Maybe you're living differently as a Christian at school or at work, but it doesn't seem to be making any difference. Maybe you're encouraging a friend who always seems to need more encouragement. Maybe you're parenting a child who doesn't seem to learn. Maybe you're planting the gospel and it doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit. Friends, when it's gospel work, focus on that word seem and understand that just like a seed God is doing a work through you that isn't quick and it's not always visible. It requires the patience of a farmer and the endurance of an athlete. So how does the victory of Christ in the past and the resurrection with Christ in the future motivate motivate us to an unstoppable service right now in the present? Well, this Jesus who has saved us from sin and death and this Jesus who has secured for us an eternity in the new heavens and the earth, when we follow him, we expect our lives to look like Service and sacrifice and suffering. That's what it means to take up our cross daily. But since we're following Jesus, we also expect the same result. That all of our service, all of our sacrifice and all of our suffering will accomplish his purposes and build his church So, friends, I understand that this labor right now might seem small, but it will bear significant fruit then. Gospel labor, church labor, people labor right now might be hard, but Jesus is worth every effort, every sacrifice, every amount of suffering. So give yourselves, Christian, to unstoppable service for the Lord. Give your energy to building up the church, encouraging your brothers and sisters. Give yourself to discipling your children, sharing the gospel, serving others. Use your gifts. Invest your resource resources. Why? Because your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Paul concludes chapter 15. Our resurrection with Christ in the future has been secured by the victory of Christ in the past. And that good news motivates our faithfulness to Christ in the present. My prayer is that every single person in this room will be convinced that past, present, and future, Christ is our only hope in life and in death. And my prayer is that our immovable faith and our unstoppable service will prove what we believe. Let's pray together. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you for freeing us from death. Thank you for forgiving us our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be glorified I pray that your gospel would be displayed through our immovable faith and our unstoppable service. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for whose glory we live. Amen.